Okay, turn to 2 Samuel 14. That's where we're at. We're going to get through this whole chapter today. And moving on in the saga that is David and his family's life, and that has now become a national incident, um, threatening the national security of Israel itself. So um, these are the days of our lives. They, these are, this is, uh, you couldn't, you know, you, you, I'm surprised that someone has not come up with a epic tale, a movie of David's life uh, recently. It is just packed with material. If Hollywood would just open it up and see what they've got right in front of them. It's, it's got war, it's got mighty men of valor, it's got intrigue, it's got affairs and, and uh, you know, um, scandal and family drama. and It's got everything that would draw Americans to the screen. So, and hopefully us to the Bible. We can, this is in God's word. Let's read uh, chapter 14. And you know, you can follow it with me. I'm going to read the whole, the whole thing. And then we'll pray. And I've got, about, I've got three points for us to notice in this passage. Joab, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So, Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. And he said to her, pretend you're in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And so Joab put some words in her mouth. And when the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said to him, help me, your majesty. And the king asked her, what is troubling you? And she said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan, or the whole family, has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother who, who he killed. Then we'll get, rid of him, we'll get rid of the heir as well. They would put not only the burning coal I have left, leaving my husband, or put out, excuse me, the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. And the king said to the woman, go home, I will issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me, and they will not bother you again. And she said, Then let the king invoke the Lord, his God, to prevent the avenger of blood from from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. So David obliges her, As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then she said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak. Speak, he replied. Let my servant speak a a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. This is verse 13 now, Renee. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself 
for the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilt on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what, what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. This is verse 15 now. And now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance, for my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, don't keep from me the answer to to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, said the woman. The king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered, as surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into my mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. And then the king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell with his face to the ground and paid him honor. He blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. And in all of Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. And whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. That's about five pounds, by the way. I'd cut my hair too and make it into a sweater, and I'd give it to each of you for Christmas. It'd be awesome. Get wider over time. Anyway, I digress. Three sons and daughters were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, like his sister. And she became a beautiful woman, also like his sister. Verse 28, and Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come to him. Then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Because he hasn't answered my text, go set that thing on fire. (laughs) So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. That's one way to do it. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said, hey, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to, to Joab, look, I sent word to you. And said, come here, so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. 
So Joab went to the king and told him this. And then the king summoned Absalom, and he came and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. <clears throat> Lord, please help us get through this. Lord, speak, a, speak to us through this. Help us see what's pertinent. Help us see what you want for us. Help, you see, help us see and discern your point in recording this story. I pray that you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand, <clears throat> and to discern what's, what you have here for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, we've been going through the life of David, and the life of David is one big roller coaster rides, a big up, uh, well, he was anointed king and went into the wilderness. He, was, he, he defeated Goliath. That made Saul, the king at the time, very jealous. He came after David in his own house. David was in denial for a little bit. Didn't know if it was just bad mood swings or whatever it was. Finally, it was confirmed by Saul's son, Jonathan, that indeed my, my, my dad is trying to kill you. You should run. David goes into the wilderness for a number of years, running from King Saul. Saul considered him the threat of the, the, the main threat of the nation. So he went after him with, a, with, a, with all of his resources and all of his might. David ran, eventually left the country did a bunch of shenanigans in the Philistine country, including working for them for a little bit, um, and even enlisted in a fight against his own people, Israel. God kept him out of that. And in that fight, Saul, the king, died. Also, Jonathan and his other sons perished as well. David then became king of Hebron. A number of years later, he became king of all of Israel, uniting the kingdom and this kind of the, uh, this kind of comet of trajectory into success. He just was kind of riding the coattails of a comet of success to where he established the kingdom. He's conquering his enemies. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital city. Israel is no longer a nomadic people. They are now firmly established as a people group and a nation in the land, garnering respect from the people around them. People are bringing them tribute. It's a great and wonderful time. David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city, really representing the manifest presence of God into the center of Israel's life, into their political life, their national life, into their culture. They are a, they are a people, just like Genesis 1 proclaims people ought to be, a people around Yahweh, focused on Yahweh, loving Yahweh, and having this creative conquering, flourishing, teeming energy from that relationship with their God, with Yahweh. And David is seeing all this take place. It's this incredible time. And then David decides to destroy it all. <laughs> he, decides to, he decides to sabotage. He's there. You know the story. He's on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. He had like a sun tanning event or bathing on the roof. He lusts after her. He pursues her. He finds out that she's somebody else's wife. That does not deter him. He blows through all the barriers. He goes, he sends for her. The, the Hebrew word is he takes her. It's a very significant Hebrew word that we see even in the original sin in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve sees the fruit that it's good and takes it. We've got this sin pattern that goes through the Bible, see and take see and take. David sees, he takes. He ends up having to cover up the scandal by murdering 
Uriah, her faithful husband, who David knows personally, even owes his life to, to a certain extent. He has him killed. He takes Bathsheba into his own house. Nathan, the prophet, is sent. He rebukes David. David confesses. God forgives, but the consequences just rot out his family and now are starting to... um, spread to the nation itself. That's the story that we're in. In chapter, uh, in chapter 13, Amnon, the heir to the throne, the oldest born, he's the next in line to be king. He also sees his half-sister, Absalom's sister, Tamar, who is beautiful. He sees her, he wants her, he takes her, he rapes her. David gets mad about it but doesn't do anything about it. And Absalom becomes the Absalom that we, the famous Absalom that we know, filled with anger, filled with a slow burning rage. He waits two years, he waits, he plots his moment, he has this party for his sheep shearers, he invites the king. He, I think he was probably intending to have his way with David as well, but David says, I'm not going. He says, well, at least have Amnon come with me and c- celebrate my sheep shearing time of year and I'll... We'll have a big party, and I want the the crown prince to be there. David says, fine, Amnon can go. Amnon goes. Absalom has his servants assassinate Amnon, and Absalom runs, gets out of the country, actually goes and hangs out with his in-laws out of the country. David banishes him for, for, uh, I think it's three years, and that's where our story picks up. It's a complicated thing. I, want to, I just want to tell you three things today. One, I want to focus on the war inside the king. I want to pay homage to how complicated this would be for David and how complicated it is for Israel. So there's the war inside the king. Secondly, I want to talk about the loose quotes, wisdom of the king. Loose quotes. And thirdly, I'm going to talk about the wisdom of the king, capital K. I want to talk about the wisdom of God in this. So the war in the king, the wisdom of the king, kind of tongue-in-cheek there, I'm being a little cheeky, and also the wisdom of the king, the wisdom of Yahweh um, in bringing reconciliation. This, uh, so this is all about the complexity of reconciliation. This is what we can learn about today. We can learn about relational brokenness, And we can learn that relational brokenness is the crux of the biblical story. It is a conundrum. It's a problem. As you can probably relate to in your own life. If there's people in your own life that you're estranged from or that there's um, elephants in the room there, the skeletons in the closet, there's certain things you can talk about, certain things you can't. You, you You know, in fact, right now, I'm sure people are popping up in your mind right now. Um... You, you can understand how complex something can be. You know, it, it, you can understand how uh, frustrating it might be to hear a, a, someone just simply say some, like throw some Christian at you and just say, well, you just should forgive. As, in, as if you should just go to the store, grab a gallon of milk, a couple dozen of eggs, some forgiveness, and boom, it'll all be taken care of. We that have lived a little bit know that that's, it's a little, it's not that easy, is it? It's complicated, it's messy, it's nuanced. Think of David. Think of David on a personal level here. On the one hand, David is the king. 
And you, you need to understand, keep in mind, there was no separation of powers here. There wasn't a judicial branch and then a monarchy branch, a king branch. David did it all. He was, he was given the sole duty of avenging injustice in his kingdom. So on the one hand, he's a king, and he is charged with righting a major wrong. Absalom had assassinated the crown prince. Think of this. I mean, this would be, I mean, this would be a major, major historical event in our country if something like this happened. In any country, this would, this, there would be a marker. This would be like two generations from now, your grandkids would say, Where, were you there when the news came out about David and Absalom? What was that like? You know, like our kids ask me, dad, like my son asked me, dad, were you there at 9-11? What was that like for you? You know, this is, this is that, the level of that event. Absalom plots and has Amnon killed, and he probably had it out for King David as well because of David's um, impotency when it comes to his power, his indecisiveness, his indulgence as a father. This is brewing in Absalom. He's bitter, he's angry, and he's mad. So on the one hand, in David, you've got that, duty. This is my place. This is my job. This is my calling. I am the king. I can't just have Absalom come back. But also in David, what else is he? He's a dad. Think of this. This It's already complex. He's a dad. And he longs for his son. In fact, the first line of this uh, of this passage says, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. And it's a bit obscure. It, and in the Hebrew language, it's on purpose obscure. It could mean longed for vengeance for Absalom, and it could mean longed to forgive and restore Absalom. It kind of means a little bit of both. The Hebrew is written that, uh, it's, it's written with intentional ambiguity there. Because it's probably saying, yes, yes. On the one hand, there's a part of David that's like, I can't let that slide. Obviously, he's a threat to the kingdom. But on the other hand, there's a longing in him. He's his boy. He loves him. He's his dad. How do you separate that? So on a personal level, it's complicated. It's also complicated on a personal level in, in this regard. Um, this is David. I can just picture him on his bed at night going, okay, Absalom needs to take responsibility for his own actions. He is culpable. He did this. And yet, any good father, any human would also be thinking, this is also my fault. I lit the fuse that eventually reached the dynamite that blew up the kingdom. That fateful day, back in chapter 12, David didn't think of it that way, but you know, that fateful day, however many years ago, man, you know, can you imagine the regret for just, for just a, a fleeting moment of pleasure with an illicit, with an, a, a woman that was forbidden, all of this. He must have, at least even privately, just been like, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. 
and the regret that must have been eating him alive. So on the one hand, I want to have mercy on Absalom because I, I, David would say, this is on me. And yet it's not on me either. It's also his fault. I didn't, I didn't make him do all that. And yet I kind of had a hand in it. It's just confusing psychologically. Imagine the torture it must have been for him. Reconciliation, it's hard stuff. It's difficult stuff. And I think one thing we need to do is pause and kind of pay tribute to the complicated nature of relationships. It's just difficult. So there's this war going on inside David, but think of the war that's going on nationally, the woman's story. So here's, you know, Joab, he's a very complicated uh, character, super complicated. He's very loyal to David, but also kind of David's cleanup man. And he sees that David is conflicted about this. He also sees the national implications of this. And David, or Joab, excuse me, kind of plays politician a little bit here. And he, uh, for whatever reason, he does not have the trust between him and David to just say these things outright. For he doesn't feel that he will be heard. So much like how Nathan came in chapter 12 and gave this kind of um, metaphorical story to kind of lure David in to get him to see his point. You know, you're the man, that famous line at the end of Nathan's parable, you're the man. Joab kind of falls a similar um, function here. He goes and gets this woman who's this wise woman. It means she is, this is what she, she's, this is what she does. She, lying and deceit, she's, she's known for being good at it. And he dresses her up in mourning clothes. He puts the story and the narrative in her mouth. All she's got to do is play the part. And boy, she plays it well. And she plays it wisely. Um, And and really, this passage could be, if you want to sum up what this passage is about, it, it is the wisdom to bring reconciliation. It takes wisdom, doesn't it? When the Bible talks about wisdom... It's talking about, in fact, you could, you, it can be argued in a sense that the entire Bible is wisdom literature and that it is trying to make you wise. Do you know what that means? It means it's trying to make you have the wisdom to know what to do in the 80% of life that the Bible has nothing to say about. Have you noticed that? People come to me and say, what school should I go to? Should I marry this person? Should I buy this house? Should I take this job? Should I move out of the area? Where in the Bible am I going to find those things? So the Bible's not, the Bible is, is a frustrating book if you're looking at it as like a manual. It's going to frustrate you because you're not going to be able to turn the page to like the real estate section and find out what God wants you to do or the school set or all of those types of things. But the Bible is trying to make you and me a wise and discerning people marked by a wisdom and a discernment that can see like what uh, this woman says to David, you're an angel able to see right from wrong, tav and ra, good and bad. What are we back to when she says you're able to see right and wrong, good and bad, tov, tov and ra? What What are we back to? 
The Garden of Eden, yes. The tree of good and evil. Right and wrong, that's the idea. Wisdom, wisdom is at the center of the story. And now there's wisdom that's needed to bring reconciliation to this really complicated, messy relationship that's threatening to kind of like gangrene to get into the national life of Israel and tear it apart. So this woman is crafty. She's wise in the sense, in a negative sense, where she's really good at deceiving. And she lays this trap for David. She throws alongside a parable that's really a parallel to his kingdom. She comes to him as a widow. I have two sons. They were out in the field. They were fighting. What would that remind David of? They're out in the field and they're fighting. What's the famous story of two sons out in a field fighting? Cain and Abel. Yep, yep. No one was there to separate them. What happened when Cain killed Abel? What, what happened? God marked him, right? So that no one would kill him when they saw him. This is a very subtle plant that she's saying, hey, the law, the Torah has made um, exceptions before. What was the law that was reigning? The law of Moses from Exodus chapter 20 was an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, cheek for cheek, life for life. That's how it was in David's realm. And David was charged to hold it. And she's making a very subtle case. Yeah, but it's not always that way. God made exception for Cain. And my sons are the same, are, are the same way. Because here's what's going to happen. Yes, although on the one hand, he does deserve to be killed. Eye for eye, life for life. Yes, that's what, it, that's what my clan wants to do. They're screaming justice. This is what it needs for justice to happen, to make this right, to reconcile this relationship. He needs to die for the life that he took. And on the one hand, that is true. But on the other hand, if, you, if we do that, if you let them do that, O king, she is saying, I will not be provided for her. I will be destitute. This is, this is an agrarian society. It's a collectivist society. And it's a patriarchal society, which meant women were protected by the men. And when she lost her husband, it fell to her sons to protect her. This would have been her financial security. It would have been her retirement. It would have been her uh, personal safety. So she's saying, if they kill my last remaining son, and even though that's right and just, according to the black and white nature of the law, that's what you should do. The gray area here, King David, is that you're basically killing me too. And not only that, she goes even further. She says, and it's more gray than that, my husband's name, his legacy, his inheritance, he will be wiped off the memory of, of, of the history of Israel. Which in the ancient Near East, that was, that was worse than death, was to not be remembered through the legacy of your, of your children. That was worse than death. That was horrible. That's her case. She's putting that before. And what she, what she reveals later, because David, he walks right into this trap. He walks right into this trap, and she says, well, and, he, and, he, and she even gets him first. He walks into the trap, but she gets him in closer. Well, um, can you invoke the name of the Lord your God? See what she's doing. 
And he says, as Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son. In other words, I'm going to err on grace for your son. I'm going to make an exception here, just like God did with Cain and Abel. I'm feeling good about that. I'm going to make an exception here. And if anyone has a problem with it, they can come to me. And she says, well, invoke the name of the Lord. He does. And then she says, how is this any different than your situation? She, it's a trap. It is, it, the trap is sprung. Israel is the widow in this case. Absalom and Amnon are the two kids in the field. Absalom kills Amnon. And the justice part of David, the king part of David is saying, eye for eye, Absalom's got to go. But the, the conundrum for the, for the country is there's, there's no heir to the throne yet. Um, second, uh, yes, First Chronicles chapter 3 talks about David's sons that were born to him in Hebron. Amnon was first, a young man by the, name of, by the name of Nathan, most likely named after this prophet, was second. Likely he died young. And the next one in line for the throne is Absalom. And then after that, David's sons would be way too young, especially until you get to Solomon. Solomon would not have been thought of at this point as a prospect. In other words, if they would have taken Absalom out of, the, out of it by killing him, Israel would be left a widow, or as the way she puts it, like water spilt on the ground that you can't gather back up again. This would devastate our country because of this feud. She states her case. So you see these layers here, which is just, just uh, textbook Hebrew ancient Near East type of stuff. They'll tell a story and it's got kind of high context culture. It's got layers all the way through it where there's a surface story, but then looming under the surface of the water of this surface story is a bigger story that has bigger ramifications. And looming under that, as we're going to see, is a much, much bigger story, the, the, the cosmic story. So first, man, relationships are hard. Relationships are hard. The story of the Bible is, is um, our reconciliation with God. We are Absalom. We are Amnon. We have breached our relationship with him. And God could not just say, like on day seven or eight, let there be forgiveness the way he said other things. It's a conundrum. It's a cosmic conundrum. How can God, the king of the universe, how can he destroy evil without destroying you? That's the tension here. How can I destroy evil without destroying everyone else? Yeah. You're thinking of the trial? Yeah. 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 That's absolutely, um, and that's why Jesus had to go through all that. It was hard. It was difficult. So, here's David chooses to, on grace. So, here's the thing. Uh, the, point number one is forgiveness is a problem. It's hard. And I, and I, I think what I want to do is just say to you who are having issues with people, no doubt, there's someone in your life that you... Um, have not made things right with yet, or maybe there's still trust issues and all of those things, I want to start by saying, 
hey, I get that it's hard. I really do. It's hard biblically. It's hard theologically. To sit here and give you some simplistic answer would be wrong of me and would show uh, that I'm out of, uh, out of depth when it comes to just relating to life in general. And I think what I want to do is show you that the Bible, and that God's Word understands you and understands where you're at. Relationships are difficult, and they're hard, and they're complex, and it takes a certain amount of wisdom. What is the wisdom? Well, look at the wisdom of the king. In choosing to spare the woman's son, David rocks right into her trap, if he spared her son, how can he, how can he justify punishing Absalom, who's in this parallel position? So he's, she's got him. She's got him here. She calls him an angel of God, knowing good and evil. That's wisdom language. In fact, a couple of times she says, you are very wise here. Even, even to the point he's so in her trap, she just feels like she can just be honest about Joab. Yeah, Joab put me up to all this. But it still applies. You're getting the point now. And she says, you are very wise indeed. But I want to say, but is he though? Is he? I mean, this woman lies for a living. Like her, her gift in life is deceiving and lying. The two other times, by the way, I did a little search. of the, There's only two other times in Samuel where David is called wise, and it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's very much like he's not being wise. One is when he feigned to be crazy and insane at the gates of, of the Philistines, when he kind of lost his mind and didn't trust in God. There was kind of a, oh, you're a wise, like, it's sarcastic. It's sarcasm. It's irony. And same with the, uh, the other time, which is escaping my memory. But there was another time where it was very pejorative. It was, it was uh, he was clearly not being wise. Absalom, here's, here's the reason why I don't think this is, I think why we, we can see that this is foolish. For one, Absalom is clearly not sorry for anything he's done. Verse 32 He's so bold in verse 32 of our chapter. He says, bring me before the king, and if I've done anything wrong, let him kill me. In other words, not guilty. I'm not sorry. I'm not guilty. I'm not repenting. So in, in my mind, Absalom is still a, should be considered a threat. He's gunning for David. He got Amnon. What's to say that he's still not gunning for David, and I think he is. Secondly, we see his impetuous nature. You know, Joab doesn't return his text. He lights Joab's field on fire. I think of the movie, I don't know if you guys remember Office Space. I think it's a movie back in the 90s where there's that guy in the office. He's this quiet guy, and he mumbles to himself, and everyone keeps taking his stapler, but he's this really nice guy, but under his breath, he's like, I just want my staple. I'll burn the whole place down. I'll burn the office down. He's kind of got this maniacal type of a thing. To, Absalom's kind of like, oh, you don't return my messages. <clears throat> you know, taking a lesson out of Samson's, Samson's book. Remember Samson? When he didn't, uh, when, when he wanted to get back at the Philistines, he tied foxes together, lit their tails on fire, and sent them through the Philistines' field, lit it all up. Absalom's going, I remember that story, that Sunday school story. I'm going to try that. Couldn't find the foxes, so he just told his servants to do it. Um, 
he's still being driven by justice. You want to know how I know? Because he has, he, um, has a little girl and he names her Tamar after his wronged, defamed sister. That tells me it's still, this is still a, a burning offense, still at the core of who he is. It's driving him. He's looking at the world through this grid of injustice, abuse, the system is wrong. I mean, think of Absalom. You, you know, we think to ourselves, okay, Absalom, yeah, you went about, about it the wrong way. Right? Yes, David was wrong and Abner was wrong, but you, bit, you, went, uh, you went about this the wrong way. And that is true. But think about it from his perspective. What's he supposed to do? Take it to court? That would be dad who's in on this. The highest level of the land in Absalom's eyes is corrupt. I've got to take matters into my own hands. This is, where, this is what's fueling him. This is what's driving him forward. Even to the point where he names this little girl Tamar. <clears throat> He's still being driven. He wants to kill his dad. He's driven to do so. And he begins to undermine David immediately. He begins leveraging his prince status, his good looks, the fact that he's next in line. He had this flowing hair, which in the ancient Near East and in our Bibles, the, uh, the hair is the glory, the quote, glory of the young man. It was a sign of glory, anointing, prominence, being chosen. He was a celebrity. He was marked. It was his calling card. People knew him by this glorious hair that he had, but it meant just more than hair. It meant um, a, a choose, an anointing of a sense, and he leveraged that for his, for his plan. <clears throat> Later, we'd find out if we kept reading that after he was accepted by his dad and brought back, so David brings this dangerous person back into the land, and what does Absalom start doing? He starts going and setting himself up in the gates of the city, and he, he begins acting like a shadow king, like a shadow government in place of his dad. People start coming to him with their judgments, with their things that they need a king's decision on. They start coming to him, and Absalom starts making decisions, sometimes on purpose, opposite of his dad. He's playing the system. He's being a shrewd, wise politician. And when the time is right, when he's amassed enough of a following, he launches an all-out coup against David that ends up running David out of town. David goes into the wilderness again for a second time. First time against Saul. That time he was innocent. Second time now because he's made a mess of his family and his nation and God's people. David's on the run again. An old man, defanged lion, on the run from his own son. Why? Angel of God, knowing both good and evil? I, I have my suspicions. I don't know. David has to leave the throne. It gets worse. Israel is launched into a full-scale civil war with Absalom and his army against seasoned David, jo loyal Joab and his army that have fought more fights than Absalom has even. You know, Absalom's this privileged prince. He, he is, you know, his nails are manicured. He doesn't even have a, it says here, it doesn't have a blemish from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He's kind of green, He's a noob when it comes to war. 
David and his men are these grisly guys that they know they eat, drink, sleep, and breathe war. They know how it works. They lure Absalom's men into this marshy land. They get all bogged down in it. And David's team just go, they, just, they make it look easy. It wasn't the battle, you guys. It wasn't like it was neck and neck. It wasn't like it was an even fight. Joab and David's team just destroys them. And Joab, who starts out in the beginning of our chapter, trying to bring reconciliation between playing the politician between um, David and Absalom, trying to have wisdom, he finally realizes the only thing to bring reconciliation is death. I've got to kill Absalom. David says, don't kill my son. He gives the order. They're going to war against Absalom's people. He says, be easy on my boy. He's not, he cannot make an unbiased decision. He's not in the position to have, to, be, to have the power to do what he's got to do to protect the people of God. He says, be, be, be easy on my boy. You know, it's a famous story. His glory is what ends up being his undoing. His hair, his glory, gets caught in some trees as his donkey is going along in this battle. The donkey keeps going. His hair gets caught in the trees and he's hanging by a tree. And so Absalom, they see him. Absalom asks for some spears. Excuse me, Joab asks for some spears as they see Absalom dangling by his hair. Joab says, give me some spears, please. Kind of a sniper shot. Joab is reminded, hey, remember the king said to be easy on him. And Joab says, yeah, I now get what wisdom really is. There is no reconciliation without death. And Joab takes those spears and he pins the son of David to a tree killing Absalom, thereby bringing back some semblance of a kingdom to David. What a life. What a story. Such a mess. I think one of the lessons that we learn here, and it's a lesson that's throughout the scripture, and that is there is no reconciliation without death. Let's look at the wisdom of the king, King David. The conundrum for God is that he too must punish sin and destroy evil. That is right and that is just. But how does God destroy evil without destroying us? That is the conundrum of the Bible. That's the tension that we find. How can God be a God of love wishing that no one would perish but that everyone would come to repentance and yet not let sin go unpunished? Not just because he, he just needs to punish it but because it's dangerous. As we've seen in our story, sin corrodes. As we said last week, don't mess with it. Stay away from it. It It's not that just that God is like, he just decided in his eternity past, I'm just going to be against certain things, and I'll just randomly decide what those things are. No, God in his wisdom knows that certain things will destroy a family and will erode a society and will hurt innocent people. 
So God's got this cosmic thing. It, there is no... Um, there is no such, another way of saying there is no reconciliation without um, death is, is, another way of saying that is there, there is no forgiveness without a payment. It does not exist. There is no such thing as an offense that does not cost. It does not exist on any level. Okay? If, if someone um, breaks my phone, in order to forgive you, that means I'm going to pay for it. It doesn't just magically appear or, magically, or the offense magically goes away. That, that's why it's so offensive, those of us that have been betrayed and hurt, that's why it's so offensive when someone can just say, oh, you should just forgive. It hurts because it makes it sound like you can just sprinkle this Christian forgiveness dust over the wound and you'll just be fine. And if you are still not fine, then you haven't done it right and you just got to keep it, keep it going. The reality is there is no such thing as forgiveness that does not cost. Not only uh, when it comes to physical material, but think about your own life. Um, think about an abuse of some sort. Think about betrayal. Think about someone who takes your innocence. To forgive that person means you're going to, you're going to suffer. That's why in the Bible, theologically, Forgiveness and suffering are almost on the same level. They, they almost always go hand in hand, forgiveness and suffering. Here's the, the, here's the implication, folks. To forgive, you must suffer. So therefore, you can't judge if you've forgiven someone, judge based on if you're over it yet. No, the fact that it hurts means you are forgiving. <laughs> Well, the same is true for God. If it's complicated for you, I'll tell you what, it's even more complicated for God. Someone has to pay for the wrongs that we have done. We are all like Absalom. We're filled with our own glory instead of the glory of the king. We're confident in ourselves, even some of us confident enough to say, well, I'm innocent. Maybe at best, some of us say, well, yeah, we're all sinners, but you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. That is the Absalom in you. Maybe you haven't murdered someone, or maybe you haven't had an affair, or done those types of things, but the, the attitude, the hubris in and of itself to say, you know, I'll come before God, and I'm pretty sure, my, I'm pretty sure I'll, be, I'll fare better than, the next, than that tax collector over there. That in and itself is the problem. You are corrupt as corrupt can be. You are permeated, and even your good intentions, even your justifications are permeated by a sense of Absalom sin. What does the truly wise king do? What does the truly wise king do? He, like David, except voluntarily, David had to, but he, like David, abdicates his throne. The wise king leaves heaven and comes into the wilderness. A baby is born in Bethlehem. The metaphysical becomes physical. The transcendent becomes imminent. The universals, the absolutes become particular. He leaves his throne and he comes into the wilderness of this world as a baby. He lives on the run 
But unlike David, this king is not running from us. This king is running after us. He's come to get you, not to run from you. He's coming to save. And the story climaxes with another son of David, Jesus, being pinned to a tree also. Except this son of David is innocent, unlike Absalom. Do you see the story? Do you see the God that we serve? This is true wisdom. God bends himself. He shows his power by voluntarily not using it, becoming weak, subject to being nailed to a cross. Think of that. The glorious king of heaven that should never have to leave his throne, he does to bring reconciliation because there, there's no such thing as reconciliation without death. If you're a Christian, that's your story. That's what you cherish. That's what you hold close to you. That's what you realize. That's how you live. You're guilty of treason. But someone came God himself, the king came. Some practical stuff. In your own life, this, the, the, how Jesus saved you, how he brought reconciliation, wise re- reconciliation to you by incurring the debt on himself, by paying the cost himself, by suffering, is also a template of our wisdom. Of our wisdom. What does it mean to be wise children of God? It's to live what scholars call a cruciform way of living. That is, we don't only believe that Jesus' death and resurrection was a sacred event. It was. But we also take it as the way we deal with life. It is the grid by which we decide how we're going to interact in our relationships and how we're going to be. It means that we to forgive and bring reconciliation. And it's different than being a doormat. That's not what it means. But we incur the, to forgive, it means that we are a people that take suffering and do ourselves. It means I'm gonna stick up for myself, I'm gonna draw boundaries, but I'm also not gonna let your past define our relationship anymore. I'm not gonna hold it against you anymore. I'm not going to keep bringing it up to you anymore. I'm going to protect myself because that's what's good for you. But I'm going to, I'm also going to take this in knowing that God will bring me, God will bring resurrection from this, a resurrection of family, a resurrection of, of relationship. There's no, I, the, the, the thought that sticks out of my mind is from um, Victor Hugo's uh, Les Mis where there, uh, what's the number of the prisoner? Three, two, John, four, six, oh, one. Two, four, six, oh, one. Yeah, John, Jean Vajan. He is this hardened criminal and he's let out of prison after many years. All he did was steal some bread, but in France in that day, that was a major offense. He was hungry, uh, he was starving. So it, right away, you've got this complexity. He was pushed to do it, and yet he's also culpable for his actions. He stole, he was put in prison, 
he was a um, hardened criminal. Finally, they let him out of prison, but with a basically a scarlet mark. He, he has every place he's got to go, he's got to basically show he's a convict, which ensures him to not have a job, which ensures the cycle to repeat again. He's going to be poor, he's going to get hungry, he's going to have to steal again. But this time, if he gets caught again, it's going to be worse. It's a lifetime in prison. It's going to be bad. And he's out in the square, sleeping in this square, and this priest comes to him. You remember the story? The priest comes to him and says, you can stay with me tonight. And was it his wife, Pharaoh? Was it a servant? I don't remember. Some, him and a woman. Servant? Yeah, she come, they come in, they're eating, and the servant is super uncomfortable with this whole thing. She's like, why in the world have you let this criminal come in and sleep in your house and eat our food? And that night, like criminals do, when everyone's asleep, he noticed that they had pure silver utensils, cutlery. And that night, he sneaks out of his bed, and he, st- he starts quietly putting all of the priest's cutlery silver spoons into his bag he slings it over his shoulder he makes a noise the priest gets up to investigate and Jean Valjean just cold punches him right in the face knocks the priest out and he escapes with the loot the next day the priest and his servant they're gardening the priest's got this you know big black eye and they're gardening and she's kind of like I told you you shouldn't have done that he's just kind of and the police come in with Jean Valjean. They caught him. They bring him in. And they say, hey, he told us that, he, that you gave him this stuff. But we know he's a, he's a convict. He's lying. We caught him. Here's, here's your thing. And the priest, to everyone's shock, including the servant and Jean Valjean, says, no, he, yeah, I, did, I, I am giving that stuff to him. And Jean Valjean looks at him. And the woman, she looks at him like, what are you doing? And she goes, and he goes, I'm so glad you came back, Jean Valjean, because you forgot, you forgot the golden candlesticks I gave, that are worth a fortune. You forgot the candlesticks I gave. I, I can't believe it slipped your mind. Stay right here. Officers, thank you for bringing him. It's so good of you. Stay right here. I'll go get him. And he goes in the house. I mean, the servants, you know, her mouth is just like, no one can believe what's going on. And the police are like, so you're saying... He is telling the truth. He's like, yeah, let him go. I'll go get the... He goes and gets these golden candlesticks. He puts them in, this, in the bag. And he, the police leave, and he looks at Jean Valjean, and he says, with this silver, I have bought your soul, and I'm, I'm buying you back from evil. You're free to be a good man now. And that sets up the whole story of how Jean Valjean becomes this grateful servant humble mayor of a city that starts helping people because someone changed his life by suffering, by giving, through a cruciform way of living. How can Christians live so radically only when we realize that our king left his throne and lived radically for us? Only then, only then will you be able to do it with the kind of fuel in your heart. See, if you try to do this just based on duty alone, It'll become legalistic. It'll become bitter. You'll be resentful. Oh, you'll do it, but you'll do it with a grudge. 
But when you understand that you are the Jean Valjean, you are the Absalom, you're the one that deserves death, but the king left his throne to come for you and die for you. When you get that and you keep getting that and you marinate in that, you will, be, you will, you will not be able to help. It'll still hurt because it's suffering, it's forgiveness, but you'll give for someone else. You'll give for your spouse. You'll give for your friends. You'll be at peace as far as you are able, even at great cost to yourself. Why? Because your king did it for you. Jesus said, follow me by taking up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, it's not just an event. It's a way of living. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being. Follow me every day and do this. You want to bring reconciliation? This is wisdom. This is wisdom. In 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21, Paul comments, comments on this, saying that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then he says, and now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. You guys, the way we live tells a broken world that they have a, our culture has a problem with reconciliation, just like all of us. But the way we live shows them a very stark contrast in way and very beautiful way of how to bring reconciliation. And it points to the creator. It points your, the way you forgive your brother, your sister, your friend, your spouse, your children. There's layers to that story. Underneath what they see you do on the surface is the cosmic story of the world, the breach between God and man and what God did radically to change it and to save us. It starts with realizing who we are and what God had to do, the wise king did for you and for me. Let me say this, if there's someone in your life, odds are you might be at odds with someone because we live in a broken world how can you, as you, we take communion today, how can you die to yourself? Are you willing to suffer the way Jesus suffered for you or to some degree to that way to bring some peace, some forgiveness, some reconciliation? Before you come up and take communion, here's what I would ask. Take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to bring that person or those people to your mind and meditate on the wisdom that we've gleaned today from the scriptures of reconciliation. Meditate on what Jesus did to reconcile us. How can you die, suffer in a responsible way to bring peace between you and others? Let's stand as we think and pray on those things.